0: Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. And good morning to those who are live streaming at home. We have not forgotten about you. Thankful that we can be worshiping together this morning, whether from home or from here. And it's such a blessing to see each of your faces, at least two, at least a third of them? A third of them. So, I mean, a third of each face, not a You, you get it. I'm going to quote here from Wikipedia, because they do such a good job of summarizing things. It tells us the basic plot of the Emperor's New Clothes, a story that many of you know, but I know there's some children here maybe not have heard it before. It's by the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. It was originally published in the same volume that has the story The Little Mermaid. It's a little bit different, but... So here's the Emperor's New Clothes. Two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an emperor. This emperor spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of doing what is best for the state. Posing as weavers, these two swindlers, these cheats, offer to supply the emperor with magnificent clothes that are invisible to any who are too stupid or incompetent. The emperor hires them and they set up looms and get to work making these clothes. a a succession of officials, and then the emperor himself visit them to check their progress. Each sees that the loom is empty, but pretends otherwise to avoid being thought a fool. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. They mime dressing him, and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with the pretense, not wanting to appear incompetent or stupid, until a child blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. The emperor deceived himself that he was wearing clothes. And so this morning we ask ourselves a a question really that James has already been concerned about. Have I deceived myself. Have I deceived myself? James one twenty six describes someone who considers themselves religious, but who is deceiving his own heart. James says that this man's religion, this one who deceives himself, his religion is worthless. In the story, the emperor believed he was clothed, but his clothes were worthless. Is your religion worthless? This morning from James 1, verses 26 to 27, we will explore some characteristics of pure religion so that we can examine whether our religion is real or worthless. I'll read James 1, verses 19 to 27 to get us started. This you know, my beloved brethren... But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That idea of deceiving themselves is there. For, anyone is a, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And here's this morning's focus. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In James 1, verses 26 and 27, James gives three tests of pure and undefiled religion so that we can examine whether our religion is real or worthless. And that's what we'll be doing this morning. James gives three tests of pure and undefiled religion so that we can examine whether our religion is real or worthless, whether we've deceived ourselves. Now, as you well know, these are not the only three tests of real religion. We could include many others, such as faith in Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. Right, that, That's another essential true saving faith of real religion, or of grief over sin and repentance. That's a sign of true saving faith as well. But that's not what James focuses on here. And the Lord knows it's not where we need to be tested this morning. Now maybe some of you have, in your experience, cleaned the house before guests arrive. But you'd be embarrassed if your guest looked into your closets. You know, you've quickly shoved everything in there, and you don't want them to open the closet. Let me put your, your coat away. With these three tests, James opens the spiritual closets we might like to keep closed. Often, we're happy when our lives look clean. These characteristics that James describes are the kind which are are easy to assume the presence of. You just naturally assume that you're doing okay in those. They're also easy to make excuses about the absence of. And that's why examination is essential. So let's begin with why James has assigned these three diagnostic tests. First, before we get into these three tests, we're going to look at the necessity of test taking. And I'm going to kind of grab from both verses 26 and 27 uh, so that we see why we need to take these three exposing and maybe a little painful tests. James begins in verse 26 saying, "...if anyone thinks himself to be religious..." James assumes that everyone in his audience would think of themselves as religious. And I would think that's probably true for 90, 95% of us, maybe all of us. We think of ourselves as religious people. Most, if not all, of the audience that James was writing to, probably all of them, were Jews who had grown up with the Old Testament, but who had put their faith in Christ. Many had even suffered for their obedience and their faith in Christ, their commitment to the Messiah, while they're other from persecution from their other Jews. Now, the word religious in our Christian culture, it has negative connotations of, of, of empty formalism without relationship, of just the externals. And the, and the Greek word that James uses is not necessarily that negative. It means the devotion to God that we express externally like temple worship, like what we're doing here this morning. It is, it is religion. A, re- a religious person, one commentator, describes them as one who stands in awe of the gods, In thinking of the Greek world, in awe of the gods, and is tremendously scrupulous in what regards them. They give to the gods the worship that's due them. And perhaps that's a good understanding, a good synonym of, of the word that James uses for religion here, worship. We could say, if anyone thinks of himself as a worshiper. See, but what matters not is whether we think of ourselves as worshipers. We must be worshipers who worship as God requires. It's not what we think of ourselves, is what does God think of our worship James describes the religious person who lacks these three characteristics, and we're going to get to them in a minute, we've already read them, as deceiving their heart. In their lives, the religion box is is, is checked. They've got that covered. They go to church, they sing songs, they read their Bibles, they participate in the Lord's Supper, they give. They may do any number of religious activities, whether in public or private, Neither they they themselves nor anyone watching would question whether they're spiritually healthy. You look at their life, they're a healthy person. But if they cannot pass these three tests James is going to give, they are deceiving their heart. That's why I'm so thankful we began with that song about God's grace. We're going to need it. We can deceive our hearts. We have that capacity. You have that capacity. You can convince yourself that you are clothed when you're sitting there spiritually naked. And that capacity should be disturbing to you. See, we have a hard time convincing ourselves we're having fun when we're miserable. And maybe you've been in a situation like that. Your family's having fun, but you're miserable. You'd rather not be in this long line at this theme park. They're they're having fun, but you're miserable. Or you have a hard time convincing yourself, you know, I'm filled You know, I've had enough to eat when really you could eat far more. You know, you're still hungry. But our deceitful hearts, that's just our body, our emotions, are eager, our deceitful hearts are eager to believe that God will be satisfied with religion instead of obedience. Now, we are shocked by this kind of silly fable, the story, when the emperor convinces himself he was clothed. Silly emperor, of course he should have known he had no clothes on. But how much worse is it to convince ourselves in reality, in this life right here, as you listen now, that we are safe for eternity when really we are in terrible danger. So we can look at the emperor and say, foolish emperor, but what about ourselves over something that's infinitely more serious? James warns at the end of verse 26 that one's religion, that your religion can be worthless. It could be of no value at all. The songs you just sang could be of no value at all. It could be to you empty and useless, futile. Worthless is a word often used to categorize the vanity of idolatry, the emptiness of worshiping a piece of wood or, or a statue. Idolatry is by definition, it's vanity, it's emptiness, there's nothing going on there. And so is the religion that cannot pass these three tests we're going to look at. That kind of religion is is as useful as fake fruit when you're hungry. That kind of religion is, is like going to... your your, your closet and packing up your suitcases and spending real money to buy a real ticket and then sitting on the airplane your children have set up in the living room. I don't know if your kids have ever done that. Set up some chairs so you, you get on the airplane. Would you buy a real ticket to go on that experience? That's what empty religion is like. But much worse, empty religion does go somewhere. It goes to eternal judgment. But James gives hope. There is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. There is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And pure here means free from contamination. The word pure is used in Scripture to describe pure water or clear glass or clean linen. Undefiled means the absence of that which, 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 which uh, which which pollutes, excuse me. Pure and undefiled religion is the real thing. It's 100% religion. It's authentic religion. It's not diluted. It's not polluted. It's not corrupted. It's not hypocritical. It's real. So what distinguishes this pure religion from worthless religion is not the validation of others. It's not that someone can look at you and say, well, they're a religious person. And it's not even our own validation since we are in danger of deceiving our own hearts. Religion is pure and undefiled in whose sight? In the sight of our God and Father. This is the kind of religion that is appropriate to God's holiness, that is welcome in God's presence. It is the worship that is acceptable to Him. It is a pleasing aroma made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, only those with this pure and undefiled religion have God as Father, have Christ as Savior, and have a home in heaven. So you can see why it's necessary to take these three tests. So much is at stake. So let's look at the first test, the speech test. James 1.26, we'll just back up to verse 26, says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James pictures the tongue as a horse which needs to be controlled by means of a bit and bridle. Our tongue is eager to run free, to run wild, and it's difficult to rein in. Worthless worship is characterized by a wagging tongue that runs wild but real religion is characterized by self-control of speech now james being a jew would have grown up with a book of proverbs no doubt he would have known that the difference between a fool and a wise man is revealed by their speech listen to proverbs ten nineteen: when there are many words transgression is unavoidable But he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 29.20 Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James also has heard Jesus' teaching. And remember, this is James' half-brother. James Whether he heard Jesus say to himself or whether the disciples discipled him and everything, he missed his brother saying when he didn't believe and follow. James heard Jesus' teaching that the health of our hearts is revealed by the words of our mouth. The health of our hearts is revealed by the words of our mouth. Listen to Matthew 12, beginning with what Jesus says in verse 34. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What comes out of your mouth is what is in your heart. Verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, Jesus says, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words are the evidence of the vitality of our worship. Our words are evidence whether we have new life in Christ. Real worship reigns in reckless words. See, our speech about God reveals some things about ourselves. Our speech about God reveals whether we have an accurate view of God. Do we blame God for our sin? Do we question the justice of God's decisions? Do we express distrust and worry, revealing that we think that we could actually be taking better care of ourselves than God is? Do our words suggest that we would be wiser sovereigns than God? See, our speech about God reveals whether we have an accurate view of God. Our speech towards others reveals whether we think ourselves better than them. So we're talking about our speech about God. Our speech towards others reveals whether we think ourselves better than them. Do we belittle others? Do we talk down to them? Do we care whether they are listening when we speak? Do we judge them and assume the worst and then lecture them? Do we ask questions to draw them out because we're eager to listen to them? Our speech about others, we've talked about speech about God towards others, our speech about others reveals whether we love people or we use people. Do we expose the sins of others to excuse our own sins? Do we slander others to exalt ourselves? Do we sacrifice people's reputation on the altar of our own worship, bring them down so we can exalt ourselves up? Are we quick to critique others? Our speech about God, our speech towards others, our speech about others, our speech about circumstances. Our speech about circumstances reveals what we value. Do we smudge the truth to make just a little bit more profit? Do we smudge the truth to keep our reputation? Do we complain, revealing that we think we deserve more than God has given Speech about God, speech toward others, speech about others, speech about our circumstances, and speech last about ourselves. Our speech about ourselves reveals whether we think we're at the center of our lives. Are we the hero of every story we tell? Always our exploits and greatness? Do we always talk about our struggles or our the extent of our efforts because we love attention? Is speech an opportunity to show our wit or our wisdom? Do we exaggerate to make more of ourselves? Think about your lives as a throne room. Imagine that door is closed and put your ear up to that door so you can listen to your speech. As you put an ear to the door of the throne room of your heart... As you listen in on your speech, who is on the throne of your heart? Is it some kind of ideal version of yourself, a reputation that you're working hard to protect? Is on the throne of your heart being respected by friends and family, your peers? Maybe it's security is on the throne of your heart, or maybe pleasure. Or is the Lord Jesus on the throne of your heart? See, your words are an offering. Your words are an offering. But to whom are you bringing that offering? Our words are windows into our worship. That's just the first test. Here's a second test that James gives. First is whether we bridle our tongues. The second is the compassion test. James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their distress. Orphan and widows in the ancient world were, the, were those who were vulnerable to oppression and those who were unable to care for themselves. Pastor John MacArthur writes, there were no life insurance or welfare programs to support orphans and widows. Jobs for either group were scarce, and if they had no close kin, or at least none who could help them, they were in desperate straits. God cares for orphans and widows. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Deuteronomy 10 verses 18 and 19 says, that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. For kids out there, aliens, not aliens. Strangers land, immigrants, sojourners, travelers. Psalm 146, verse 9 says, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. We see that this is close to God's heart, is how he describes himself. To visit, or- to visit orphans and widows doesn't mean to stop by and say hello, though that could be a great place to start. The verb means to look at and to consider, to give your attention to. And it's doing that for the sake of helping To visit means to bring the aid which is needed. Matthew 25 verse 36, Jesus describes those who really are his brothers and it says that I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And that idea of visiting there, it is bringing the aid which is needed by the one who is sick. Luke 1, verses 68 to 69 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. He's saying God has visited us by bringing us a Savior, a Messiah. That is how God shows His grace to us. By visiting us. The Greek word... Translated, distress, comes from the idea of being pressed in or squeezed, being crushed. Distress is the circumstances which press down upon us, that that feel weighty, that crush us. A life in distress is a hard life. It's nearly an unbearable life. It's a day-to-day life of not knowing where your next meal comes from. It's a, a day full of suffering, a day full of uncertainty. To visit orphans and widows in their distress means to use the resources God has given you to help the vulnerable and needy. In today's world, those in distress can include the handicapped, I mean, in addition to orphans and widows, the handicapped, the impoverished, the homeless, the refugees. Of course, it includes those who are within this body, those who are within the body of Christ universally, but more important than who the orphans and widows are is the question of whose you are. To whom do you belong? When God is our Father, when we value who God is, we desire to be like God. A generous God gives birth to generous hearts. A generous God gives birth to generous hearts. When we have received mercy, we desire to show mercy. Some of you may be in jobs and in neighborhoods where you are surrounded by those in distress. Others of you may have to exercise in your jobs and neighborhoods a little bit more initiative. So find those around you who most need compassion. Compassion. Perhaps for some of you in in classes, it's to seek out the the socially awkward kid in class, the one who has no friends for whom life is crushing. Invite your neighbors into your homes so you can learn who in your neighborhood is in distress. And it may not be that they just have the distress of not making ends meet. It may be a, a neighbor who's grieving the loss of a loved one, a widow who can't care for their yard on their own, a man who drinks himself to sleep every night. Join with others in your church who are visiting orphans and widows like those who are involved in foster care. Our church building, when we get to be there, is in a neighborhood with needs. How can we meet the needs of our church neighborhood? And as you seek to meet needs, seek to meet those needs in as relational a way as possible. Write a check is great, but don't stop there if you can. Offer maybe just an example to offer to tutor at your local school. Make room in your schedule to love others, to do good for God's glory. You used, and I trust if you're saved, in your, in your salvation life, you have felt the weight of a soul looking at you who you know is going to Face eternity away from God. So don't close your eyes. The prophet Isaiah warns against empty religion. Isaiah 1, begin with verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. He's going to describe worthless worship here. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. It wasn't that these things weren't commanded, they just had become empty. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this, this trampling of my courts? Who invited you here? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Verse 15: When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Worthless religion sees the need in the face of those made in God's image and looks away. Worthless religion looks At the need in the face of those made in God's image and turns away. Worthless religion. God's heart was to visit you in your distress. That's the distress brought upon you by your own choices, right? Sin. And He did so because He loved you. Will you visit the orphans and widows, the vulnerable? Can you who have received God's mercy refuse to give God's mercy? Have you been born of God if you don't have God's heart? Have you been born of God if you don't have God's heart? First test is the tongue test. Second test is the compassion test. Third test is the worldliness test. If you find these painful, if you're all like super encouraged at this point, praise the Lord for the work he's doing in your life. Some of you might find some, some pain going through these. And that's God's grace in your life too. Third test is the worldliness test. James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Unstained means to be free from splots or blemishes, to be morally pure. The one who has pure and undefiled religion is careful not to be stained by the world. It's like a child in a new dress eating soup before going to a party. You can imagine them in a white dress getting ready to go to a party or maybe a wedding. And they're trying to eat tomato soup which is a cruel test for the parents to give them. But they're trying so cautiously to eat this tomato soup before going. That's how we should be living in the world, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, not to distance ourselves from the world so we don't see those in need, to keep ourselves unstained from the world system. The world refers to, the, to that whole world system that assumes independence from God and seeks satisfaction apart from God. The world system assumes independence from God and seeks satisfaction apart from God. As one commentator writes, it's the whole human scheme of things organized in terms of human wisdom to attain a human goal without reference to God, his laws, his values, or his ultimate judgment. It's that whole human scheme of things organized in terms of human wisdom to attain a human goal. And There's many different human goals, but they all circle around selfishness. The world is a system of selfishness. And sacrifices are made to achieve the goal of your happiness. And whether that happiness comes from pleasure, whether that happiness comes from success security, comfort from the acceptance of others. Sacrifices are made in the system of selfishness, and the guilt that you feel somehow, since we are God's creatures made in His image, living under His law, has to be stifled in the system. They have to be pacified with man-made religion so that you do some some more works or say some more prayers so that you can excuse your sin and maintain your self-righteousness. That's what this world system is all about. Is, is that this world system is summarized perfectly in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is driven by desire for what the body can consume, for what the eyes crave, for what inflates our ego. See, the world system is about satisfying self rather than serving others. The world system is about getting rather than giving. The world is about reward in this life rather than in eternity. The world is about pleasure at God's expense instead of pleasure in God's presence. The world is about autonomy rather than submission to the king. The world is about success Not that there's anything wrong with success in itself, rather than stewardship. The world is about what I see in the mirror, and not what I see in God's word. The world is about doing what is good for me, and maybe mine, rather than doing what is good for you, and for others. The world is about solving spiritual problems with man-made answers, rather than God's answers. The world is about getting honor from men, rather than seeking honor from God. The world is about achieving your dreams rather than pursuing God's will. The world is about self-righteousness rather than receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The world is about getting guilt off your back by writing a check rather than trusting in Christ's substitutionary death. The world is about getting thrills from watching wickedness rather than living within God's perfect law of liberty. The world is about man's exaltation rather than God's glory. Romans twelve two says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, what the, what, that which is a good and acceptable and perfect, and that will of God is found in the word of God. The one who has pure religion lives according to God's word. He wants to think biblically, to think God's way about money, and God's way about time, and God's way about our purpose, and God's way about parenting, and about gender, and about men's and women's roles, and about eternity. The one stained by the world prefers the world's answers and the world's rules. The one who has pure religion is God-centered. They can say what Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The one who is stained by the world lives as if life and his calendar and his pocketbook is from me and through me and to me. To me be the glory forever. Perhaps you can see now why James parallels visiting orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Why these two thoughts are put together. The stain of the world will keep you from visiting orphans and widows. When we are captivated by pleasure, we will not care about others' needs. When self is king, serving will suffer. When self is king, serving will suffer. Unless caveat serving is done to save yourself and save face in front of others and then serving's okay again if you want to know how to live unstained in the world look at the lord jesus christ matthew 20 verses 28 says jesus says just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many The world asked, who is going to serve me? And how shall I save myself? John 4, verses 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And the world asked, but when do I get to do my will? Like, where's the carved out me time?" Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself and the world's stain reasons. But who is my neighbor? So are you sitting there splattered in the stain of the world? Is there soup all over your nice white party dress? Are you drenched in the world's stains? You can see the difficulty. We live in the world. In a sense, we're trying to keep our, our, our clothes clean as we're dressing down a stream of tomato soup. Right? We're right there in the middle, and sometimes the raft feels so small, and we're trying not to be stained by the world. How's it going in your thinking? or living according to God's word, according to the world. These tests are tough, right? James is going for the total knockout here. Three tests so far, speech, compassion, and worldliness. And really, this is where a lot of the rest of the book is going to go. Speech, compassion, and worldliness. What do these three tests reveal about the reality of your religion? Hans Christian Andersen's tale continues, and I'm going to read from a translation here. The little child says, but he hasn't got anything on of the emperor." The father says, did you ever hear such innocent prattle? And one person whispered to another what the child had said. The child said he doesn't have anything on. And at last, the whole crowd says, but he hasn't got anything on. The emperor shivered, naturally, but he he suspected they were right. He thought, this procession has to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. Perhaps some of you are suspecting, like the emperor did, I don't have any clothes on. I'm spiritually naked. Perhaps you think my religion may be worthless religion. I'm not passing these tests. This is not the pure and undefiled religion which God requires. Don't continue on with the facade another day longer. Don't continue on with the march like the emperor does. Don't be afraid of humbling yourself before God and one another. Don't just say, this is maybe the easiest. You know, I'll try to cut down and some of the gossip and some of the ways I exaggerate to make myself a little bit better. I'll try to control my tongue a little bit more. You know, you've really convicted me here. I'm going to give some more of my paycheck to good causes. You know, to to try to keep myself a little bit more pure, I'm even going to cancel my Netflix. If your religion is worthless, you need more than reform. Your nakedness has been exposed, and you need to be clothed. You need to be covered in Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin, who passed all of these tests 100%, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's what happened on the cross when Christ took the punishment of sinners. He died in the place of sinners so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We need robes of true righteousness, not reform. On the road to Damascus, the Pharisee Saul realized that his religion was worthless. This is now the Apostle Paul writing. He thinks back about that worthless religion he writes in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. I count all things to be lost, all of that religion as empty, as, as worthless, and in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I failed horribly at those tests. My religion was empty and worthless. And he says, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I'm not going to try to go and do more good deeds to make myself righteous, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And some of you here this morning have worthless religion. You've grown up with, with, with worthless religion. You try to make that worthless religion yours, but it won't save you. I don't know which of you you are, but I particularly think of our young people. That religion will not save you. Only Jesus Christ will save you. So put your faith in Christ. If you are failing horribly at these tests, and if you're like, my speech betrays me all the time. And, 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 and I don't care beyond myself and I've got the world stained all over me. Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Put your faith in him and he will make you righteous. And then he will make you like himself. And that is what we are here doing this morning as a church who believes in Jesus Christ. As gathered saints who have their faith in Jesus Christ, who have true religion, we are becoming, by God's grace, like Jesus Christ. And I know some of us are convicted. I have been convicted this week. Don't let that conviction end. Go home and ask, is my religion worthless or is it real? Is it pure and undefiled? Take the speech test. Take the compassion test. Take the worldliness test. If your religion is worthless, if you know it this morning, will you put your faith in Christ and be clothed in his righteousness? Don't go on thinking You're clothed when you're naked. Let's pray. Father, you have protected these words written now for nearly 2,000 years. And they are perfect in the original manuscripts, inspired by your spirit, written by your man, James. And Father, your spirit, who guaranteed these words preserved and written is working here now, I trust, in your grace and nothing to do with any words I've said. Please, Father, may your spirit expose whether our religion is worthless. I pray, Father, that your spirit would convict in ways in which we do need to repent. We pray, Father, for those who aren't saved, that they'd be clothed in Christ's righteousness. I pray, Father, that those who are saved would repent where they need to. Pray, Father, that they'd be encouraged and thankful where there is compliance and passing. In Jesus' name, amen.